Hello everyone, I'm The Touring, and I'd like to welcome you to my podcast, Lore of the Apocalypse. On this show, I'm going to explore the lore of Werewolf the Apocalypse. With version 5 of Werewolf and a couple of official video games all right around the corner, I thought it was a great time to refresh my memory on over two decades of lore while inviting others along for the ride. If you like what I'm doing or have any questions, feel free to hit me up on either Twitter or Patreon, both of which I'm the underscore Toring, and that's T-O-E-R-I-N-G. That's enough for me, let's get to it. Welcome back to the fire, pup. Grab some dirt, grass, or a spot on a log and settle in for your next lesson. Last time we were together, I mentioned that there were tribes who were very picky about their membership and covered the Black Furies, a tribe of Garu that is almost exclusively made up of women. Well, tonight we're going to go to the opposite end of that spectrum and talk about a tribe that will accept pretty much anyone, the Bonars. Where the Furies proudly track their ancestry back to a specific location, the Nars either forgot the location of their founding, or more likely don't care enough to be bothered to remember it. Either way, the tribe probably started somewhere between northern Africa and India, but quickly spread far beyond that as they followed humanity and it spread across the face of Gaia. According to their own legends, the first Bonar was the little brother of the first member of all the other tribes, the runt of the litter, but still a scrapper, as all Garu are. It is said that he was small, he was also the best warrior of them all, but because of his lankiness and loudness, he was frankly cut out of the best part of the kill by his much larger kin. Left with only the bones, he made do, avoiding the fat flabbiness of his siblings. He was lean, mean, and tough as the gristle that he dined on. One day, the little scrapper had had enough and decided he wouldn't be pushed out of another kill, so he hatched a plan to trick the others into allowing him his fair share of the kill. Using his superior wit, he convinced the others that the kill was diseased and unfit for their consumption. As they backed away, however, he dove in and ate with gusto, only to be called of the worm by his oldest sibling, told to go back to gnawing on bones. This, of course, pissed him off, but he finished his meal anyway. It was then that the worm arrived, the real worm this time, thundering up from below the ground. The oldest was taken out quickly, and the other members of the pack fell to injury behind them, while our little bone-gnawing hero hung back, watching and waiting for his chance. Finally, he saw his opening, the soft spot on the hide of the great worm. He darted in and sunk his teeth into the spot, ripping and pulling. He gnawed into the very bone of the great beast. Blocking his jaws, the tainted creature was so pained by the wound that it fled, nearly taking the runt with him. Gaia, having seen all of this, spoke up. And so shall it always be. The children of the Nars of Bones will bide their time in prudence, and strike when the hour is best for their survival. Now, while I highly doubt the accuracy of this tale, I do think that it does a very good job of describing the Bonar's overarching theme. Survival. Survival at all costs and in any way necessary. Don't put your neck on the line unless there's a damn good reason for it. 
This drive to survive is what has driven the Bonars to do something few other tribes have done. Where most werewolves do their best to avoid human population centers, the Bonars make these very same places their homes. How better to survive the oncoming apocalypse and guide man than to do it from right next to them, after all. During the Impergium, the Bonars did their part to cull and control the human population, not necessarily because they wanted to, but because they were forced to. They contributed by spreading disease and famine, things that their tribal totem, a rat, is well versed in. This affinity for rats led the Bonars to be one of the more nautical tribes. After all, what ship doesn't have a few rats aboard? As men spread across the globe, so too did these sea dogs follow. But it was only when man began to settle in cities that they became truly civilized. It was around the founding of Rome that the first mention of Bonars living within cities surfaced. They learned there that they were good at living off the scraps of human civilization. They also discovered that they were good at hiding, snooping, and sneaking through the dark corridors and catacombs that made up the city's architecture. It was also there that they found their hatred for slaves and slavery and began their second mission, to lift up the downtrodden. The Nars did whatever they could to free those living in chains and bring them the freedom that they so loved themselves. Things were going fairly well for them until the double hit of the Inquisition and Black Plague. Themselves immune to the plague, the ancient Nars did what they could to aid the poor who were struck the hardest from it but ended up being carriers and spreading it further. This great mistake led to what they called the piping, a grand moot to be called in Barcelona sometime during the Renaissance. Every gnar of the world over was called to the city where they met in the catacombs below it. After many long nights of talking, the bone gnars enacted what they called the ban of man. Help not man for his survival unless it threatens ours. Hurt no man unless he threatens us. Kill not man for food unless we might perish. Simple enough rules that anybody could remember them, but powerful enough to convey their promise. No longer would the Bonars roam around, picking up food for the hungry and finding places for the homeless to sleep. They would look after their own, and that was it. They couldn't afford to be wiped out like the ratkin that aided them. They were to be Gaia's last line of defense, after all. Soon after this piping, the discovery of the new world led to a second grand moot. During this meeting, it was decided that the tribe would abandon the majority of its European territory and migrate en masse to the new continents that had been discovered across the ocean. American Bonars soon found themselves fighting at Bunker Hill, exploring the frontiers as mountain men and trappers, and butting heads with the thinly spread garbage that were already in the Americas. Soon enough, these Nars found that their usefulness as scouts and explorers was no longer needed by the other tribes, and they were once again discarded by the more warlike members. Many turned to alcohol and drugs, and things were not looking well for the tribe, but they did what they did best, and survived. As the Civil War came about, the Nars once more found themselves a group of enslaved people, and ban of man be damned, they stepped up and helped Mrs. Tubman free people whenever and wherever they could, just like they'd been doing since Rome. 
With the War of the States over, America moved on and was soon taken by the industrial beast. The world changed all over again in just a matter of years. Now almost intrinsically tied to the cities of men, the Bonars were forced to change as well in order to survive. Always survivors, they quickly learned about steam, electricity, and gunpowder. They learned about mechanics, architecture, and engineering, and claimed to be the first Garu to speak with the spirits of those machines in the streets upon which they operate. The Bonars, still living in their preferred place among the lowest of society, were scooped up with them and fed into the great industrial machine to be dumped out the other side, their lungs black and bodies broken. But, as always, they persevered, surviving and doing whatever it took to survive, no matter what. This same thread of survival led through the market crash and Great Depression when they struck up a strange alliance with a similar look down upon clan of vampires known as the Nosferatu. These sewer-dwelling bloodsuckers probably would have been torn to bits by any other tribe, but the Nars saw use in them, and soon enough they controlled a good portion of New York City with their help. Don't be spreading that last bit about, though, as... Some of the other tribes we'll discuss down the line who wouldn't appreciate it very much. Anyway, the Bonors made it through the Dust Bowl, creeping west with the immigrants that flowed in through Ellis Island. Once more, though, the world changed as Hitler and the Nazi party kicked off World War II, giving the Nars no choice but to once again ignore the ban of man and join the fight. All across Europe, Nars led raids against German supply lines while running rather profitable black markets with the purloined goods. Many Bonars rose to fame, fighting on the front lines, and took great pleasure in freeing the folks that had been held in the camps. This instinct and calling to survive holds true, even to this day, as their hodgepodge traditions, their seps surprisingly democratic, and their fetishes and rights scavenged from Gaia knows where. They still maintain odd alliances with vampires and were-rats. They thrive in cities, occupy decaying suburban wastelands, and even prosper in run-down backwaters. Their creed is clear and simple. Whatever works. And work it does, as they are the tribe with the largest number of members by far. The children of Rat know all kinds of secrets they have learned from the invisible people of the city, as well as those seen by other Garu as being below them. They're wicked fighters who have mastered various vicious guerrilla tactics suited to their urban environments. They know where to find food or where to seemingly conjure it from garbage. They take in those werewolves that no other tribe will claim, including those born of the third breed who are treated exactly the same as all other members of the tribe. This leads to the Nars one major weakness. The other tribes tend to keep them at a distance, meaning that they have few true allies. This weakness, however, has contributed greatly to their strengths of self-reliance out of necessity. Another unfortunate weakness of the tribe is a gradual thinning of the wolf blood within their kinfolk. While they have some lupus packs as kin, they have mainly kept their numbers up through human partners and through recruiting. They are thick with the children of Garu love, both their own and those they have adopted to become soldiers of rat. They honor hospitality and generosity as a measure of a Garu. An who has very little but gives it away freely is as esteemed as a king. 
They treat their tribe like a family, their elders being considered mother and father, the most prestigious form of address. Bonors venerate their tribal totem rat in the same way as a maternal figure, a queen of a brood of ragged survivors. Rat is the swift, silent master of the hit-and-run warfare, and while she fights for the downtrodden in the cities, she can be as vicious as any other war totem when cornered. Mama Rat is particularly fond of children and cubs, and she urges her followers to protect them from harm. In summation, the Monars are a tribe of survivors who fight for those who are too weak to fight for themselves. Champions of the poor, destitute, and downtrodden, they are masters of guerrilla warfare and surviving in the most inhospitable locations imaginable. I think that's probably enough for one night, though. So, settle in and get some sleep. Next time we'll talk about the children of Gaia. But until then, don't let the worm bite. That's it for this week's episode of Lore of the Apocalypse. If you have any comments or suggestions, reach out to me on either Twitter or Patreon by searching for the underscore toe ring. Thank you all for listening, but a very special thanks goes to my patrons, Bambi Parsons, The Primogen, and Alex M. Without your support, the battle for Gaia would have already been lost.